You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. This morning, uh, we want to just take some time to think about faith. We want to think about faith. But as we begin here, I just want to ask you uh, this uh, really very simple question. How are you doing? I mean, really, really, how are you doing? I mean, we are 20 months into a roller coaster ride that does not seem to have an off-ramp. I mean, we, we didn't ask for this. We didn't expect this. And frankly, I mean, we, don't, we don't like it. Uh, But it is here to stay for now, so I'm just asking you this this morning. How are you doing? And and I don't mean, how are you doing with uh, restrictions or with the government or with face coverings or with vaccinations. I mean, how are you doing personally and and spiritually? Uh, What kind of toll has all of this taken on you? And how are you responding. You know, on the one hand, uh, the pandemic-related events have really kind of done us a favor. That They've dampened our pursuit of earthly happiness. Um, it's, it can be, and it's sometimes good to be reminded that our joy and contentment and abundant life are not found primarily in the good gifts that God gives to us, but in God Himself, the gift giver. And it's good to have our trust in God's sovereign grace tested and refined. I mean, the Lord is on his throne. He is ruling over all the current events. But on the other hand, I'm tired. I mean, maybe you can relate. I mean, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we've had to guard against weariness setting in and taking over. You know, I I get it. You get it. We live in a sin-cursed, broken world, and there's always struggle. And now we're we're plagued with inactivity and isolation at times, conflict with family and friends, financial stresses and inconveniences, disruptions and frustrations. And and you know this. It's not not merely COVID. I mean, we all experience the the effects of this ubiquitous virus, but it's not only, or not even most significant struggle in our life. I mean, there are marriage conflicts, there are challenges with parenting, there's, there's cancer, there's depression, there, there's failing health, and we all battle the indwelling sin that remains. So listen, we have to persevere. We need a game plan to run this race of faith all the way to the finish line. How will we remain steadfast? How will we endure without growing weary or faint-hearted? Today, we need to hear from God's word about the faith that endures. Uh, This is sort of like part two of a mini-series on faith. Uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Kyle from Redemption Edmonton challenged us to consider the tests of faith, uh, the test of a faith that works. 
There was the usefulness test. Uh, do you have an act of faith that does good works? Uh, there was the demonic test. Do you have a, a faith that goes beyond head knowledge? And there was the pressure test. Do you have an unswerving faith that is faithful under pressure? And in some ways, today's message really grows out of last week's sermon. Uh, th that message from James 2 last week, I don't know about you, but it was convicting. It was challenging to my heart and soul. Uh, when Pastor Kyle talked about that gap of unbelief, you know, that, that really hit home. You know, maybe your knowledge is here, but your, your functional life is here, and there's a gap between what you know and how you live. Well, well there's a danger with that gap. If that gap exists or grows wider or, or is not attended to, there's a danger. Because the larger that gap of unbelief, the greater our tendency to drift away from faith. Routinely living contrary to our knowledge actually hardens our heart so that we may become comfortable living a lie or maybe even emboldened to openly rebel. So how do you narrow the gap? And how do we, how do we stay the course and run the race of faith? I mean, we can all relate to the pressure test of faith, right? I mean, life is hard and it's full of trials. So again, we need to ask, how do we keep going? How do we persevere? When, when your faith is squeezed, when, when the pressure is mounting, how do we endure? In other words, God calls us to have a faith that works. So how do we energize our faith amidst a prolong, the prolonged pressure test that we call life? If you're honest, and I hope you are, you probably have some coping strategies in your life. You know, you've heard that phrase, when, when the tough get going, the going get tough. Uh, well, sometimes for us, I think when the going gets tough, we watch Netflix or, or YouTube or or we work too much, or, or we take a vacation, or we eat junk food, or we exercise more, or we vent and complain about everything that's wrong in the world, or we withdraw and live with this kind of nagging discouragement. If we're not careful, uh, weariness sets in. Whether we admit it or not, we're all weak and frail and prone to faint-heartedness. We all feel gaps in our faith and we all battle with unbelief. And frankly, sometimes it's easier to self-medicate with some kind of instant gratification remedy. Or it can be easier to set our hope on tangible earthly prizes rather than on intangible heavenly rewards. We need God's grace and God's help so we can press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need encouragement to persevere and to run the race with endurance. And that's what we find in Hebrews chapter 12. These verses, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, offer four encouragements to run the race with endurance. These, these are encouragements to strengthen your faith and persevere. These are essential practices for finishing the race. Let me pray for us again, and we will get right into Hebrews 12. Father, we do feel uh, the heaviness of 
the sin-cursed and broken world around us and within us. And, and we feel this constant need to endure. At every turn, whether to the left or to the right, there are opportunities to lose focus, uh, to, to get off course, uh, to, to have our hearts and minds uh, distracted or drift away. But God, we want to be laser-focused on Christ and the mission for which you have called us, that we might bring you glory, that we might display him to a dying world. And God, we need your help. We need encouragement to persevere. Would your word, through your spirit, speak to our hearts this morning. Would you minister to us and cause us to grow in our faith for your name's sake, we ask. Amen. All right, well, if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have our Bible, an usher will be glad to give you a copy that you can use today. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And just so you kind of have an idea, the sermon is really kind of front-loaded. We'll spend a lot of our time in the, the earlier verses, and then as we get towards the end, we'll go a little bit more quickly. But as we said, God's Word has four encouragements for us to run the race with endurance. Uh, and as we, as we enter in here, we, before we get to those four encouragements, we really need to kind of set the stage. Uh, we need to kind of set the, the stage of this passage. So follow along as I read Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The imagery here is borrowed from one of the most popular events of the Greek games. And God is calling us to view ourselves as athletes who are in the games. And we're to run with endurance. That's the main charge of this section. It really sets the tone for the entire passage. The command emphasizes speed and agility. It's, it's the same word used of the prodigal son's father when he, he runs to meet the, com, the son coming home. There's an eagerness and a persistence. It's not, however, a sprint. Uh, we know this because we're told to run with endurance. Uh, even in difficult circumstances, we need to maintain a, a steady determination to keep going. Uh, it, it's a call for stamina that requires ongoing training and an eternal mindset. In fact, endurance is one of the most important parts of long-distance running. Uh, to give you a modern-day example, I want you to think of the self-transcendence race. Has anyone heard of the self-transcendence race? Well, listen to this. It happens in Queens, New York. Runners cover about 5,000 kilometers in about 52 days. Running, listen to this, 5,649 laps around one city block in New York. That's about 100 kilometers or over 100 laps every day, passing the same playground and the same ball field and the same high school over and over again. That is endurance. As, as Christians, I mean, we don't have to continually run around the same city block, but we do have to persevere. 
But we have to keep running when life is hard or when it's boring or, or even when it's prosperous. And we have to run the race that is set before us. In other words, we don't, we don't choose the course. Uh, we don't get to decide the route. We faithfully follow the route God has marked for us. For some, it might be longer and windier. For others, it might be straighter and shorter. But every Christian runs, and God's sovereign wisdom determines their path. And that, that word for race turns into our English word for agony. And, and, you know, that sounds about right. I'm not a runner, so long-distance running is agony. I can relate here. And, th and that's really kind of the idea. Uh, that, that's what the author wants us to hear, is that a race involves struggle and competition. It, it's demanding and grueling and agonizing. Uh, th there's weariness and exhaustion. G God's people run a race that's strenuous and continuous. We are ultra-marathon Christians. And all this kind of begins to make sense when we consider the context of Hebrews 12. Uh, many of the Hebrew Christians had, had started well, but they were sputtering out. Uh, they were looking back to Judaism and looking ahead to persecution and suffering. And as a result, they were tempted to quit running, to leave the faith. If you divide Hebrews into two parts, the first ten and a half chapters demonstrate that Jesus Christ is superior to the Judaism and the Old Covenant. He, he is a better prophet, priest, and king. He, he mediates a better covenant and offers himself as a better sacrifice. As one person said, there is more to be gained in Christ than to be lost in Judaism. And, and then the second part of the book gives the implications of the superiority of Christ. Again, the most significant is a call to faith and endurance. And again, the original readers were facing persecution. They were tempted to return to Judaism so they could stop the suffering, so they could avoid the hardship. Thus, in this book of Hebrews, there are several warning passages, and there are strong exhortations to endure. Look, look for example, uh, just maybe a page back or so, at, at Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, verses 32 to 39. After a sobering warning in the verses just before, we read in Hebrews 10, 32. For recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and yet will, and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. Uh, this is what these Hebrew Christians needed to hear. They had started well. They'd even sacrificed for the Lord. And the author told them, you were, you were running so well, don't turn back. 
persevere by faith. There's a better possession and a promised reward. Endure suffering to gain glory. It's worth it. And the alternative is a fearful reckoning with the living God. So this endurance, of course, is by faith. So when you get to chapter 11, just before chapter 12, it defines faith. And it shows how past Israelites exemplified a persevering faith. They had assurance of their future hope in Christ. They sought God for the reward of him drawing near to them. They were confident that earthly suffering pales in comparison to heavenly treasures. And that brings us all the way back to Hebrews 12, 1, which again we read, therefore. After all that, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, run with endurance. Uh, running is a sort of metaphor for faith. And the, this, the race that we're in is the Christian life. If you're going to live by faith and endure the hardships of life, we, just like the original readers, need encouragement. So the first is this. The first encouragement is imitate the faith of Old Testament saints. Imitate the faith of Old Testament saints. Again, picture a stadium during the athletic games with seats rising on every side and believers are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Well, what, what does that mean, a cloud of witnesses? Well, cloud represents a large mass of people and, and witnesses are the Old Testament saints from chapter 11. You know, you just gave through this catalog of Abraham and Abel and Moses and how they live by faith and now he says, they are the cloud of witnesses. Now, now it's sometimes thought that the Old Testament saints are, are actually spectators of the race, right? They're the, sometimes the imagery is given that we're running the race and the Old Testament saints are just kind of watching us run. Uh, but I don't really think that's what's going on here. I mean, nowhere in Scripture suggests that saints in heaven watch believers. And, and the word here for witnesses, it, it's really never used in that, in that way. It's where we get our English word martyr. The idea then is that Old Testament saints, they are, they are witnessing to the faith. In other words, their lives testify to the value and validity of hoping in the gospel. It's like if, if they were a witness in a courtroom and they give testimony, you know, God is faithful. He, he helps me persevere to the end. These Old Testament witnesses are meant to encourage our, our faith. They, they set the pace of the race. When we look to them, we see, hey, they've gone before us and they crossed the finish line. Uh, their faithful lives inspire us and compel us. If, if these ordinary men and women of faith can endure suffering and persevere in the faith, we can too. In, in fact, we have even more than they had because we have life after the cross. In the, in the verse just before chapter 12 in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, 39, it says, all of these, that is the Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, uh, they didn't experience the blessings of the new covenant, and yet they had commendable, persevering faith. So what does this cloud of witnesses teach us? If you were to take time and read through Hebrews chapter 11, we learn that Old Testament saints testify to God's care and His sovereign grace. Uh, they are examples, again, of persevering faith and obedient faith. 
I mean, for example, Abraham obeyed by going to a distant land, and he, he obeyed by offering Isaac as a, as a sacrifice. He persevered in faith, even though he didn't receive all the things promised. Old Testament saints also laid aside weights and sin. that They looked to the future reward. Uh, Moses is a great example here in 1126. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses endured because he looked to Christ, and, and he treasured him. And yet Old Testament saints experienced terrible suffering. For example, in uh, verse 36 and following, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. The world is not worthy of these men and women. Thus they pleased God with their faith and they longed for heaven. 11.16 says, As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Old Testament saints are evidence that we can endure by faith. They ran well, not perfectly, but faithfully. Hebrews 6.12 tells us to imitate the faith of faithful believers. The Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And Paul wrote in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and they testify that we can continue to run. Here's some of the takeaways. God uses Old Testament saints to help Christians like you and me understand the meaning of persecution and how to re properly respond to it. We see this example of God's sustaining grace, giving them courage. So just a, a kind of a simple takeaway is just know your Bible. Uh, read your Old Testament. Be able to say, you know, God gave Abraham the faith. Uh, God was in Rahab when she had faith. God was working with Abel when he offered the better offering. Be, be able to internalize these things. Know the Old Testament. Become convinced of God's character and God's promises as it's displayed in God's people. Be like Abraham, where no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So learn from the past saints and take courage. You know, God remains the same. As you read your Old Testament and you see how God provided for his people, God remains the same. In the next chapter, Hebrews 13, verse 6, we, we read, We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. When life is hard and you're weary, remember God's faithfulness to his people and imitate the faith of Old Testament saints. Well, these old covenant saints, while 
worthy to imitate their faith, they are, however, not the ultimate motivators. Uh, their, their faith provides encouragement, yes, but the ultimate motivator is Jesus Christ. So the second encouragement to run the race with endurance is this. Lay aside and look to Christ. Lay aside and look to Christ. Look again at Hebrews 12. Halfway through part one, verse one. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're still using the analogy of, this, of an athlete. These verses describe the practice of, of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. We, we saw earlier th that the main command is to run the race with endurance. And on both sides of that command, you have these supporting principles. The, the way you run with endurance is by laying aside hindrances and looking to Christ. Uh, first, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That, that, that verb to lay aside is the idea of get rid of. Stop doing what you normally do. And the two hindrances we need to get rid of are weights and sin. Uh, the weights we're to lay aside really is it's anything that hampers your faith race. I mean, ancient athletes sometimes uh, ran naked so they could be free of any bulk. There wasn't just no extra. They were, they were free to be streamlined. Uh, modern day runners often wear these kind of tight minimalist uniforms. In other words, get rid of anything that slows you down. In this case, it's not referring to sin at this point, uh, but those things that prevent, interfere, limit, or burden your Christian life. Uh, I mean, you can run with a backpack of rocks on your back if you like, but, but it makes it unnecessarily harder. He's saying take off the burdens. Uh, now, we need to be thoughtful here as we consider this I mean, it's, it's easier to understand kind of removing warm-up pants before you run a race, but what does it mean to lay aside spiritual weights? And you know, it's, it's, not, it's really not the same for every person. I like to think of it this way. Spiritual weights clog your thinking and choke your spiritual affections. They consume your mental energy. They distract you from your mission. They draw you away from the spiritual disciplines. We all have them in our life, right? We all have these weights in our life which we need to lay aside. For example, uh, consider some of these possibilities. Uh, how about conspiracy theories? Have you heard any of those recently? How about political activism, news, hobbies, shows, games, sports, your favorite websites? I mean, really anything can become a weight that hinders your discipleship. The key is discerning what takes precedence in your life and what rules your heart. What has your attention and what has your affections? Is it helping or hindering? Does it take too much prayer in your life? Is it dispensable? 
It's a good idea to take inventory of your life and streamline your habits so you can more effectively run the race with endurance. Now, remember, these weights that I'm talking about, they're usually enjoyable. They're in your life for a reason, and they're not sinful. But are they useful? Do they help you in the race? Does it help or hinder God's call on your life? Well, next we need to lay aside sin which clings so closely. Now, this is a little bit more obvious, right? Put away sin in your life. Put it to death. Don't tolerate anything, not even a a hint of sin in your life. Uh, Especially in view might might be the sin of unbelief, right? Because these Hebrew Christians were, were tempted in this direction of unbelief. And doubting God's character or his promises, it can, it's really a temptation for all of us. Uh, that, that's that, again, that, that gap of unbelief that Kyle talked about last week. It, it's dangerous because sin is deceitful and deadly. It hardens our hearts and burdens our conscience and sabotages our affections. It produces guilt and shame and causes us to become ineffective and fruitless. We're told that it clings so closely, which means it it easily entangles and and it seeks to control us. Sin is slavery. And you know what? It's difficult to run when you have chains on. You and I must daily repent of sin and reject entanglements. Remove unnecessary temptations. Build safeguards into your life. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, rid yourself of any thought or attitude or practice which impedes your progress in the Christian life. To do that, we need self-control. We need self-denial. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete Athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. This purposeful, intentional running, this laying aside, it requires looking to Jesus. It requires looking to Jesus. We see this in verse 2. You know, during the games, the runners started at this square pillar and they would look ahead to another square pillar where the judge would be seated. And when they would run, their eyes would stay on the judge. Uh, they would just look straight ahead at the finish line. The competitors remain fixed on him. And for Christian, the primary way we run with endurance and lay aside hindrances and sin is by looking to Jesus. When you look away from other things, We look away from other things, and then we fixate on Christ. It's really kind of one simultaneous action. It's not like we lay aside and then look. The the laying aside is the looking. It's the turning away. If you're not looking at the distractions anymore, you are looking at Christ. So many places in Scripture we see this. Consider Stephen the martyr in Acts 7. As Stephen was, was getting stoned... It says, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Or what about Mary in Luke chapter 10? 
Uh, she chose the one thing necessary. She stayed focused on Christ. She wanted to listen to Jesus, sit at his feet while Martha was distracted with serving. Her weight, perhaps, was serving. I compare that with Lot's wife in Genesis 19. I mean, she, running away from Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife, she looked back. She didn't stay focused. She didn't stay her, her gaze upon the goal. And we need to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated. We look to Jesus because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He initiated and purchased our faith, and he brings it to perfect completion. You know, you, you know your faith doesn't start or start with you, and it, it doesn't come from within you. And it, it also, it, it doesn't depend solely on your best efforts to sustain it. No, Jesus gave you faith, and as long as you look to him, he energizes your faith. Your faith endures because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. In fact, Jesus endures the, ensures, excuse me, Jesus ensures the completion of your faith race by first running the race himself. Uh, he supplies the blood-bought grace because he knows what it is to run the race and finish the line. He became a man. But you must fix your gaze on him. You must fix your eyes on the source and substance of your faith. Without, without Christ, your faith lacks purpose and power. And when you look elsewhere, your faith fades. When you look to Jesus, though, you see the superior and ultimate example. Jesus is the perfect model of staying focused. Right? When, when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus was laser-focused on his mission. He was always moving towards Jerusalem and the cross, he wasn't distracted by popularity or worldliness or selfish gain. He was determined to accomplish his mission. When you read the rest of verse 2 there, there's really kind of three concepts to notice, three things to emulate from the end of verse 2. Uh, the first is the path to joy leads through the cross. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. The cross represents the greatest suffering in history. Jesus not only suffered physically, but also experienced the full and fierce wrath of God. Nevertheless, the future reward and joy strengthened him to suffer willingly. Uh, the principle for you and I is this. The path to eternal joy leads through the cross of self-denial. It's a universal Christian principle that we must die to live. The resurrection life is only possible for those who die. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Look to Jesus. Well, next thing you need to notice is the cross is humiliating, but Jesus despised the shame. Crucifixion, crucifixion was horrific. I mean, it, it was performed naked and in public, it inflicted the worst possible prolonged pain on the victim, and it was intended to cause a slow death of utter humiliation and disgrace. Those who hung on the cross were considered cursed by God. Jesus, however, 
despised the shame. He endured the cross by not regarding the stigma of it. Jesus thought so little of the pain and sorrow that he didn't try to avoid it. Instead, he endured it. Because the glory on the, on the other side was invaluable. The principle here for, for you and I is uh, you will suffer humiliation as you follow Christ. But despise the shame. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Lastly, those who endure the humiliation of the cross, they are exalted. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered once as a sacrifice for sin, and he is now exalted forever. Uh, the principle here is that humble yourself in this life so that you'll be exalted in the next. Earthly suffering is a light, momentary affliction compared to the coming glory. So run for the better prize. Run for the guaranteed prize. Let me just ask yourself, what do you need to lay aside? And how can you refocus your gaze on Christ? We all experience weariness. We all experience trials. And I expect greater persecution is coming for the church. Let's lay aside the weights of sin. Let's lay aside the distractions and look to Jesus so that we can stay alert and stay focused and stay on course. Well, the third encouragement to run the race with endurance is to consider Christ crucified. Consider Christ crucified. Look at verses 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. These verses really are really a continuation of the last point. I mean, verse 3 begins with the word for, although it's not translated in the ESV. It is, by the way, in the NASB. But for, consider. For consider him. Uh, it, it points to a kind of a further explanation of what it means to look to Jesus. In other words, look to Jesus who endured the cross and consider him who endured hostility. Uh, that word consider has, is a command to think carefully and completely. As you experience hard, the hardship of suffering and the weariness of prolonged difficulties, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider Christ and what it was like for him. The, the Crofts read that uh, Philippians 2, that he humbled himself and became a man even to the point of death on a cross. In other words, before you complain and get discouraged, remember that the man, Christ Jesus, experienced far worse for your sake. Jesus endured unjust trial, betrayal, hostility from sinners, the bloodshed of crucifixion, shame and humiliation, and the Father's wrath. I, I, I mean, it is difficult to imagine the Son of God, the Creator, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, humiliating Himself and embracing the, the shame to rescue His enemies. Think about that long and hard and strengthen your own faith to endure. 
Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death stabilize us amidst, amidst fear and suffering. After all, he came from heaven to do his Father's will, and he now says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We take comfort knowing that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and find grace to help in time of need. He's also a, a permanent priest. He's able to save to the uttermost, and he lives to make intercession for us. He's a propitiation for our sins so that we have an advocate with the Father. He gave himself for us so that we are more than conquerors and unable to be separated from the love of God. He's compassionate so that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And he is gentle and lowly in heart so that in him you will find rest for your soul. Listen, consider Christ crucified and what you'll discover is a humble king who saves you and sympathizes with your weaknesses. He gives comfort and grace. Also consider Christ crucified so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Right? There's the purpose, so that. So, so you won't grow weary. If, if you don't consider Christ, you're going to grow weary. If you consider Him, if you look to Him, you can guard against becoming faint-hearted. When you grow weary, you lose, you lose motivation. And that faint-heartedness is the result of weariness. You're weary for a while, and the result is faint-heartedness. A kind of discouragement sets in. Uh, interesting that, that, that grow weary and faint-hearted were, were sometimes used again of the athletes, of the, of the runner becoming exhausted, right? They become weary and discouraged of the long race, which again, I can relate to. It's agony, right? This is the picture. We, we, we want to avoid this weariness and faint-hearted. The point is to think deeply about Christ's endurance to avoid those things. I mean, after all, verse 4 reminds us that whatever trials or suffering you and I experience, and no matter how severe, what Christ endured was in fact worse. Jesus endured death on the cross, but we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. And now, although the readers of Hebrews here, they, they were experiencing some level of persecution, the suffering had begun to start. Uh, they, they weren't being martyred, right? They weren't shedding their own blood. Their struggle against sin uh, refers to the, the, these persecutors, right? The struggle against the sin of others who are persecuting them. In our case, it could be all sorts of things. A, a sinful government, sinful agendas or policies, sinful worldly system. And I mean, any sin that opposes Christ and His gospel is a struggle against the sin of the world. But while it's talking about this sin that we struggle that comes against us, we all know from experience that personal sin often accompanies suffering, right? Trials have temptations. So we need to consider Christ so we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4 gives us perspective. It gives us hope. We're reminded that… We, we may have to give our life for the, law, for the cause of Christ, and then in, until now, we haven't experienced more suffering than God allows or than we can handle. 
So we take courage from Jesus' steadfast example, from his sort of costly trailblazing. He's the ultimate hero of faith, and we're called to follow his example. 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And in Hebrews 13, just in the next chapter, verse 12, it says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let us go to him to that place of shame, to that, that, that cross, and bear the reproach he endured. Consider Christ. When life is hard, when you feel weary, when, when, when sin opposes you, Christ can sympathize. He knows what it is to be opposed. He knows what it is to bear the sin. Well, the fourth and final encouragement to run with endurance is to remember your sonship. Remember your sonship. Verse 5 adds kind of a second implication to our struggle against sin. Verse 4 said, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. And then verse 5 begins, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. You haven't struggled, even to the point of shedding blood. Like, you haven't given your life for Christ. You, you, you can't press into it more. And also, there's another thing. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Uh, the ESV translates verse 5 as a question, but I think it's easier and better to understand it as a statement, again, the NASB doesn't even have a period between verses 4 and 5. There's just a, the and just continues the sentence. I think that's a better way to understand it. At the very least, you can read the ESV translation as kind of a, a rhetorical question. Uh, the point of verse 5 is to introduce Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. Uh, it, it says, my, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What, what's going on here is Scripture connects suffering and sonship. This has always been the way God works holiness into his people. Deuteronomy 8, 5 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Or Psalm 94, 12, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Or Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here is the, the suffering, the trial, the temptation for weariness and to give up and to become faint-hearted and to get out of the race, all these temptations you're experiencing, this lack of endurance that you have, it's because you've forgotten the Word. Are you reading your Bible? This is how God works. This is how God loves you. He, he, he brings sovereignly and wisely and in His grace, He brings hardship into your life because He loves you. Uh, we need to understand that that word discipline, it's not punitive. It's not punishment. The word means training towards maturity, which includes instruction and correction. Uh, when correction is involved, it's for the purpose of godly character. It's the same word for child training in Ephesians 6 or for training in righteousness in 2 Timothy 3. 
In Hebrews 12, the readers had forgotten God's word. They weren't looking to Christ, or at least they were struggling to look to Christ. And and they'd forgotten, this is how God works with his children. If he wasn't bringing trials into your life, if he wasn't disciplining you, training you, seeking to mature you, then what are the implications? That you're not a son. God doesn't care for illegitimate children this way. In their suffering, they didn't consider that God was treating them as sons. And in this case, forgetfulness is deadly. If we forget God's word and his promises, then we're susceptible to lies, to unbelief, to worldly thinking, and to fleshly logic. We need to remember our sonship, and we remember we have our hearts stirred up by fresh and frequent times in God's word. If you're going to receive and appreciate God's love for us, we need to understand what is love and how he loves us, and we learn that from his word. In these last verses, 5 through 11, uh, really just quickly need to see kind of just three truths that are related to our sonship. Uh, first is receiving God's discipline means receiving his love. We saw that in verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Because of his continual kind of agape love, God disciplines. He trains us towards maturity. Thus the pain of discipline is really only understood when, when the connection is made between the visible discipline and the unseen love of the Heavenly Father. So God's discipline is his love. Next, receiving God's discipline affirms our status as his son. I mean, only illegitimate children don't receive discipline, it says. And only sons receive the inheritance of the Father's blessing. I mean, imagine this picture. You have a son or a daughter. You have a child. We'll say a son here. And if this son, if this child of yours um, gains your values, your worldview, has a certain sort of godly character, if, if they're shaped into this man they've called to be, if those things happen, then they will gain this huge inheritance, this rich and lavish inheritance. It would be unloving for you to fail to give that child your worldview. It would be unloving for you to not help him mature and to gain godly habits because on his own he'll fail. Well, God says, I have this huge inheritance for you, but it's for those who pursue holiness, to strive for holiness, verse 14 says. And God says, let me shape holiness in you. And the only way I shape holiness is with the fire that burns away the dross. It affirms our status as sons. Uh, lastly, God's discipline is purposeful. As we've been saying, it promotes holiness. Earthly fathers discipline their children just, just for a short time, verse 10 says, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. God's discipline is not, it's like the earthly fathers in the sense that he does it and it's towards his sons. But it's not like earthly fathers in the sense of it's not just for a short time, it's ongoing. And, and it's not, the earthly fathers, they have something to gain, right? 
They want a respectable son to gain the inheritance. God has nothing to gain. He does it for our good that we might share in his holiness. God formed his holy character in his children. No discipline equals no holiness, which equals no seeing of the Lord. I mean, even Jesus learned obedience and was made perfect through suffering. Right? Hebrews, Hebrews 2.10 and 5, 8 and 9, I think, says that he learned obedience through suffering. God matured his son, Jesus. Right? He was sinless. There was no sin to take away, but he matured him. And he gave him a deeper experience of what it means to be a human through suffering. We want to remember our sonship when we're weary. Remember that God is working into us a holiness that can only be gained by His sovereign ways, which often means hardship, which often means just the the difficulties of life. Remember your privileges as sons of God. Read and believe God's promises. Bring your heart there when you're weary, when life is hard. Rejoice and receive God's fatherly discipline. He's showing His love for you. He's training you and making you holy. He's breaking your love for this world and preparing you for a better country. Right? If we were satisfied in this world, if we were content here, we wouldn't long for the better country. He's breaking that from us. And He's treating you as a son ensuring that you receive the inheritance. So accept that greater holiness requires suffering and submitting to God's fatherly discipline, His training. Look, life is hard. Life is unfair. We all experience weariness from this sin-cursed world. There's encouragement to run with endurance. Imitate the faith of Old Testament saints. Lay aside and look to Jesus. Consider Christ crucified and remember your sonship. In the end, we want to be able to say with Paul, at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May God's grace, may we be able to say the same. Let's pray. Father, we again, we all do feel in, in our own ways and, and to varying degrees that uh, we become weary and tired and fatigued. Life is hard because of the sin within and the sin around us. But God, we're so thankful uh, that you spoke, because you spoke a word to these Hebrew Christians. They were, they were tempted to turn from you. They were tempted to avoid suffering. And our hearts are just like theirs. But God, I, I pray that we would take your word to heart, that we would imitate the, that, those faith, the faith of those who ran with endurance, and that, that we would primarily and especially look to you, Christ, and we would find there grace and hope and strength and an example and a high priest that sympathizes and one who strengthens our faith. 
Lord, we, we don't want to trifle with these things. We don't want to trifle with the, the, the weights that distract us or the, the pet sins that we keep in our lives. May we lay it aside and run to you faithfully for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.